Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing the concept of secular stagnation, a term describing the condition of low or no growth. It was first coined at the end of the Great Depression in the 1930s. More recently, of course, we've heard new warnings that it threatens the global economy. Sergei Guriev, the EBRD's chief economist, is here to help us understand what exactly secular stagnation is and how much uh, we might be at risk from it. Sergei, so what is it and what causes it? Uh, it doesn't sound like a great thing. It's not, it's not a good thing and it's one of the major issues in, uh, that global, uh, global economy is facing today. And indeed, you're right mentioning uh, 1938 when this term was first coined. And the problem at that point was exactly that after the Great uh, Depression, economy was uh, uh, recovering at a slower than expected rate. And we see something like this happening today. After Great Recession, the crisis of 2008-2009, we see advanced economies uh, growing slower than expected. If we actually look at GDP growth before the crisis and after the crisis, uh, if we look at uh, OECD numbers, US numbers, UK numbers, EU numbers, we see that uh, there is a gap in growth of GDP per capita or in total, total factor productivity being one percentage point per year slower, which is a huge number for advanced economies for which normal growth is something like two or two and a half percent. And we have to see this in a, in a bigger context, don't we, Sergey? You know, if we think about the post-war, post-Second World War, years. You know, in some Western European economies, as they recovered from the events of the 1940s and uh, 30s, even you had very high rates of growth in the 50s. You then had reasonable rates of growth in the 60s, decline in the 70s, and then ups and downs in the 80s and 90s. How does all that fit in with secular stagnation? Exactly. Uh, this is the question that economists are thinking about today because there are different versions of different explanations of uh, secular stagnations that played out uh, uh, in different forms after uh, World War II. And basically there are three camps. Uh, one camp is uh, explaining secular stagnation by problems on the demand side, the other one on the supply side, and the uh, third one suggests that maybe secular stagnation is not as bad because we don't measure it well. Uh, and the problem is not... It's always a good excuse. It's yes. always a good excuse. Yes, economists can actually <laughs> tell statisticians that the numbers uh, don't add up. And uh, basically the term secular stagnation this time around was brought back to the public debate by Larry Summer who pointed to the demand problem, suggesting that these are, these are the issues. On the other hand, there is a very influential book by Roger Corden who points to uh, the fact that uh, maybe the technological advancements uh, in recent years are not as big and not as influential, influential as in previous uh, stages of what we call Industrial Revolution One and Industrial Revolution uh, Two. And uh, this is kind of the supply side story. Some people would say that uh, technology is coming, but uh, industry is overregulated and the frontier of te uh, frontier technology is not diffusing to all the firms. It's only a few technologically advanced firms that uh, push technology frontier fast enough while laggards are not adopting the new technology. And finally, the measurement camp suggests that, well, uh, there are new products uh, which contribute to quality of life, which we don't really measure well because they're either free, like uh, Google services, uh, like all the all the things that we consume without paying of them, 
for them. Or maybe uh, we don't adjust quality of new products and new services as well as they deserve. So basically growth is happening, but uh, GDP numbers just don't show it. And so this uh, this debate continues. And uh, and uh, indeed, uh, when we look back at post-war uh, developments, we saw that uh, initially economists worried about demographic issues. Uh, the first uh, time they started to talk about secular stagnation, 1938, Alvin Hansen was worried about demography. Uh, now that was indeed addressed by baby boom after World War II. Now the issues are somewhat different, as I mentioned. And we are now 10 years on from the start of the financial crisis, which is why people have focused again on this whole issue of secular stagnation, the question of how long relatively low levels of growth, particularly in advanced Western democracies, will really continue. But what, where is the frontier, do you think, on, on secular stagnation? If we got back to, say, an average of 3 or 4% growth, you know, that would be pretty good in the eyes of many Western economists. Would we think then that was the end of secular stagnation? Yes, if, if we think that advanced economies grow at 3%, uh, then I think people would be sufficiently happy. Uh, now, uh, some uh, American politicians believe that America should grow at 4%. Uh, people who oppose those politicians on the uh, far left of American political spectrum thought 6% growth is even better. Uh, but 3% is a good rate for an, American, for an American economy. European economies, if they would grow at 2.5%, Again, everybody would be happy. Now we are growing at something like one percentage point below those numbers. And that, of course, worries people in the advanced economies and necessarily people in emerging markets for whom advanced economy is a major source of investment and a major destination for exports. And a lot, a lot of this discussion on secular stagnation has been focused on Western advanced democracies. But what does it tell us about emerging economies, even those in the EBRD region? How do we, when we look through the lens of how we're considering secular stagnation, what, what do we see when we apply it to a wider set of economies? Uh, well, uh, that depends again uh, on uh, which part of the world you look at. If you look at a country like India, it's still not suffering from something like this, not uh, from slowdown uh, in growth rates. China is already suffering from a slowdown, and we see that um, much of the recent growth uh, has been um, uh, supported by fiscal stimulus during the uh, crisis, but also by expansion of debt. And now China is thinking about what's called uh, supply-side structural reform, including cutting uh, production capacity. In that, in that sense, de-investing, if you like, divesting uh, more than investing. Uh, so China is already thinking about those issues. Uh, now, countries where EBRD is operating, especially countries uh, closer to Western Europe, of course, uh, suffer from slowdown in Western European economies. And countries in Central uh, uh, Europe already see growth rates not above but below 3%, exactly because their major trading partners, major destination of investment capital, are actually slowing down. So this is something that all emerging markets should think about, but for some of them, it's a bigger problem for, than for the others. And in the EBRD, of course, we're very focused and very interested in developing market economies. Where does secular stagnation fit into that? Because there is almost a feeling it's like some disease eating away at market economies if, if, if it's taken to extreme. And that must have a, a, an impact on, on, on states of development. Uh, yes, exactly. Unless we, unless we assume away the problem and say that it's completely mismeasured, which I think is also very hard to do, even if true quality of life is rising much faster than GDP. GDP numbers are still the 
numbers that are communicated in the public debate and people feel unhappy simply because reported GDP numbers uh, are not growing as fast as they would like to, even though you can see a lot of free, exciting services being available. Now, if, if, uh, if we assume that GDP numbers do reflect the true uh, slowdown in quality of life, then of course, uh, lack of growth is a big issue for support for market economics. And this is, uh, this is where, indeed, uh, we have a number of solutions. And uh, one, uh, one important uh, source of uh, uh, secular stagnation is exactly the technological progress and technological diffusion. As I said, there is a number of papers produced by OECD economists uh, who show that the frontier firms in advanced economies are actually increasing productivity as fast as they used to. And there is an issue with the average and with the laggards who don't uh, introduce those economy, uh, those technologies as fast as uh, they would have done before. And part of this story is that competition is not uh, providing uh, sufficient stimulus for uh, crowding out those zombie firms, if you like, those firms that would otherwise be exiting the market. We support the losers too much. We don't allow for creative destruction to take care of uh, uh, improving uh, the average productivity. So the other, uh, and this is this is where market economics is very, very important. Now, the other, the other source of uh, secular stagnation is on the demand side, where uh, uh, market players actually think that future is not as bright as it uh, could have been, and therefore, assuming uncertainty or low growth in the future, they underinvest today. And this is where institutions like EBRD or other uh, multilateral players can actually crowd in investment by bringing in their own funds, co-investing with private sector in long-term productivity, mainly, for example, in infrastructure or in human capital. And this is another policy which is very important. And finally, in other issues related to inequality, when you have highly unequal societies, you have a lot of wealth sitting with the rich who don't consume but instead try to save, and you have uh, this balance between savings and investment. And if you have more inclusive societies where you have powerful middle class, which is happy to save, and you have the poor, which, uh, sorry, happy to consume, you have the poor that have to consume, you have much more uh, demand for uh, new goods and services uh, relative to a highly unequal society where the whole wealth is concentrated by the very rich. We'll, um, we'll come back to some of these solutions to secular stagnation in, in just a moment. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives and of course we're keen to hear what you think about what we're discussing you can contact us at ebrd on twitter and on facebook with the hashtag pocket economics i'm jonathan charles today we're discussing secular stagnation with our guest sergey guria sergey just a, a short while ago we were talking about some of the things you thought might actually help to overcome secular stagnation how difficult is it though to deal with this issue and, and to think of solutions because clearly it's been a long-running problem if solutions were that easy to find we would be out of it by now well, uh, this is this is a very good question. By definition, secular stagnation is a long-term problem. We still don't know whether it is actually here uh, or, or the slowdown is temporary. Uh, maybe in 20 years we'll be able to judge better whether secular stagnation was an important problem in, uh, in, in our days. Now, uh, regarding uh, the solutions, I think, I think it is not exactly true that uh, uh, we... Uh, could have applied those solutions because uh, they w would be easier or difficult to find. I think identifying the problem per se uh, 
pushes the public debate forward uh, on this particular issue. And indeed, as we just discussed, uh, there is a push uh, by multilateral institutions and governments for investing in infrastructure, for covering infrastructure investment gap in different uh, regions, including our own region of operation, the BRD's own region of operations. Uh, there is a debate about the need for, uh, 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 for uh, intensifying competition and therefore promoting, uh, promoting diffusion of uh, innovative technology. And there is, of course, a debate on inequality and inclusion, uh, which we also take uh, a very close uh, look at. So in that sense, I think uh, the debate on secular stagnation, which in, uh, came back uh, uh, after many decades of neglect, came back to the center of uh, public discussion just a few years ago, just literally a couple of years ago, that brings back uh, the intention to those potential solutions. There's a possibility, isn't there, that in terms of global economics, we're at some sort of inflection point where maybe you're at the high watermark of globalization, the high watermark of fair trade, free trade, however mm -hmm. you want to describe it. Um, and, and I wonder how that plays into the potential for secular stagnation. Yes, uh, this is, uh, I think this is indeed a very challenging point, and we've already discussed the issues of uh, inclusion that uh, may or may not be con compatible with the current wave of globalization. And many people think that globalization cannot be inclusive simply because uh, the current wave of globalization generates uh, the winner-takes-all effects, the economies of scale. Mm. If you're a little bit better than your competitor, you capture the whole market. It's actually good for uh, 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 productivity growth because more productive firms uh, capture the whole uh, the whole pool of resources and whole market but it, it is it may be bad for inclusion and in that sense we need to figure out how to promote inclusion without uh, uh, without killing globalization and diffusion of technology these solutions also exist uh, but uh, this is where we need to target uh, those uh, individuals and households who are vulnerable. Uh, we need to provide skills to those who lack skills instead of protecting firms that are less productive. Mm -hmm. So we need to combine creative destruction with uh, support of uh, those parts of the society who are vulnerable and with providing them with opportunity to succeed in the new environment. And this is completely different from pr 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 protecting zombie firms, zombie banks, and uh, promoting low productivity um, environment. That seems to be an argument against protectionism for me. Um, what should MDBs do? What, what role do MDBs like the EBRD have in this? Um, I think, I think uh, for us, of course, there is a, 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 an opportunity in investment and also in policy dialogue. In uh, policy dialogue, we should concentrate on uh, allowing for inclusive globalization, uh, for promoting uh, technological diffusion and creative destruction combined with social protection, social safety nets, and uh, providing skills to those who lack skills. Uh, on the other hand, uh, of course, there is a huge investment gap, including infrastructure investment gap. Uh, in order to crowd in private investment, we need to assure private players today that uh, uh, there will be a productivity growth in the future. And for that, we need to invest in infrastructure. Uh, we, need, uh, we need to invest in uh, productive capacity of tomorrow. And uh, in that sense, uh, of course, there is a role for uh, uh, investment players like ability.
Sergey, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for today. Remember, you can share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and EBRD.com slash podcast to download the previous episodes. And bear in mind that reviewing and rating Pocket Economics will help others to find and enjoy it. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.